Welcome, everyone, to Los Libertinos podcast. I am your host, Carlos Abelard. This is Chingazos and Fire, episode number 10. Our guest today is Daniel McCarthy. He is the editor of Modern Age, an academic quarterly journal that goes back to the 50s. Daniel was previously the editor-in-chief of the American Conservative magazine, and he was also the Internet Communications Director for the 2008 Ron Paul presidential run. He is also currently hosting a five-part live webinar series on uh, conservatism on Renegade University. By the time you watch this show, he would have, by by the time this show drops, uh, he he would have already done his third episode. So you can still get in uh, and get in on the, the, the following two that will be live. And if you watch this show in the future, you can still uh, uh, get the webinar series and uh, and, and uh, get all the knowledge that he's going to drop in it. So uh, I'll put the, the, the link in the show notes. Um, Daniel, thank you for uh, coming on. Well, thanks, Carlos. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah. So um, uh, a cool little story for you that I think might be cool and um, was that in, 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 in my journey to to do this podcast, I've had a lot of like many inspirations that lead to that lead to actually where you start doing this stuff, you know? Um, and, uh, one of them was, uh, I don't know if you recall, but, um, after your first interview with that about a year ago, uh, that's that Russell from a renegade university. He used to have these classes where, um, he would have the guest on that he might've just interviewed. And it was just a session where it was some of his, um, paywall people on there plus the guests and, 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 and you were one of the guests and, and and we got into or everybody got into a real good conversation about uh, secession, and uh, and and I remember that I had asked you a question about it, and you were kind of like you know what that's a good question I might have to think about it and it was about uh, whether at the time you would have sided with Mexico when Texas wanted to secede, and you said you know what uh, let me think about that that's a good question and. And that always stuck with me a little bit because I said, you know what? One day I think I'm going to have a podcast and I'm going to ask him again. Oh, and uh, <laughs> so uh, 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 we can circle back to that uh, at the end because I'd, I'd like to 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 get an answer to that. But uh, you know, we'll we'll let that simmer a little bit, like a good caldo or a good menudo. You got to let that simmer a little bit, and then at the end we'll uh, get into that. But for uh, my audience, um, I like to think that it's like half libertarian. Half like my primos, my cousins, tias, tios, uh, neighbors, and all that that haven't uh, uh, or wouldn't know who you are. So, um, if you could, please, could you give a kind of a, a background into you, where you're born, raised, family, education, and how your path took you to a way where you are the editor uh, of a magazine of someone that was that of someone that's one of your intellectual hero, like you know. That's that's an interesting journey, how you get to that point. So uh, feel free to take time to kind of uh, 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 lay your background out in that way so people know uh, what's up. What's up with you, you know? Well, thanks, Carlos. You did a really good job of introducing me at the beginning of the podcast. And uh, you and I actually have uh, something significant in common in that uh, I actually have several family members right now who are living in uh, San Antonio. Uh, But but I, I actually don't have very deep roots there. So my family moved to San Antonio uh, kind of in the early 2000s. Uh, originally, I'm from Missouri. I'm from a small town called Sedalia, which is around the center of the state. It's a little, little closer to Kansas City than to St. Louis. Uh, but I didn't really grow up there. I actually grew up uh, in a number of places. My father was in the uh, U.S. Armed Forces, and we were stationed in various different locales around the world. 
uh, including Japan for a couple of years and uh, the UK for a couple of years as well. And then in my high school uh, years, I was in uh, Winchester, Virginia, which is uh, it's about an hour's drive from uh, Washington, D.C. My father was working in Washington at the time, but um, he wanted to raise the family in a more normal location. And uh, Winchester was just far enough outside of the swamp to count as uh, relatively normal, at least at that time, like, you know, 25 or, uh, you know, a little 30 years ago almost. So um, that's my, my general background. Um, you know, I got interested in politics in the early 1990s, which was a really kind of uh, you know, a fascinating time. It was a lot like, you know, our own time in that you had these populist insurgencies in the form of uh, Ross Perot uh, running as a third party candidate. You had uh, Pat Buchanan running in the Republican uh, primaries, really putting up a, a stiff challenge to both George H.W. Bush and to Bob Dole in 92 and 96. And uh, you had the Republican establishment and the neocons working overtime to try to crush this populist insurgency and to try to monopolize control of uh, Republican politics and conservatism. And of course, there was also a civil war going on among libertarians at that time. Uh, you know, libertarians who like Ron Paul, for example, were kind of skeptical of some of the uh, more sort of um, managerialist or sort of global expansionist uh, plans of some of what they called the Beltway Libertarians. So on questions like NAFTA, for example, now it might seem like NAFTA is just a free trade deal and therefore libertarians who support free trade would automatically support NAFTA. But in fact, Ron Paul and Murray Rothbard and others, they said that, uh, well, you know what, if you just want free trade, you don't need a thousand page treaty in order to do it. You don't need to have all of these you know, environmental regulations and labor regulations and arbitration agreements and so forth. You can, you can just unilaterally have free trade. So they were very skeptical of what uh, sort of the technocrats in Washington, D.C. were doing with these uh, these trade deals. And so even though, you know, I was started out on the very conservative side of things, supporting people like Pat Buchanan, uh, there were always libertarians uh, like Ron Paul and Murray Rothbard who were uh, simpatico, were parallel with uh, my points of view. And uh, this, you know, sort of uh, political outlook of mine uh, was what I adhered to through uh, most of my college and grad school years. So that's up until the early 2000s. And uh, I came, became a little more libertarian, perhaps, over that time, because um, it seemed to me that there were a lot of libertarian thinkers who had a very sharp understanding of the ways in which the modern state is actually very destructive of all the things that conservatives say they care about. Uh, so things like the family, for example, are not, uh, you know, they are being actively attacked by the state. The state is trying to transform them. And the reason the state wants to do that is because by loosening people from their connections to one another, the state is able to sort of come in and become the, the sugar daddy or what, whatever you want to call it of, you know, all of these dependent peoples. So that's what the state ultimately aims to do. It wants to become the provider for everyone and replace all of the institutions of civil society that uh, conservatives care about. And then in the early 2000s, of course, you had the 9-11 attack uh, uh, 10 years ago and uh, ultimately then the you know, sort of Iraq war in 2003 and the war on terror. I was very strongly opposed to all those things. That's when I first came to Washington, D.C. I went to work for the American Conservative magazine as a staff writer. And, uh, you know, it was very lonely to be a, a critic of the Iraq war at that time, especially on the right. Uh, people forget now. But of course, um, you know, even a lot of center left Democrats were supporting the Iraq war. That was true of Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden and John Kerry. Um, so, you know, to think about being on the right, being actually in the same sort of, you know, uh, in the same you know, party as George W. Bush and so forth was kind of, you know, considered to be uh, a pretty radical position to be opposed to the Iraq war at that time. And of course, now we were all proved so correct that uh, the tables have completely turned. It's been interesting to see in the past few days as we record this podcast, um, Donald Rumsfeld has just died. 
And, you know, uh, 15 years ago, Rumsfeld was, uh, well, a little more than 15 years ago, about 20 years ago, Rumsfeld was everyone's hero. And now, of course, uh, you know, Rumsfeld just being attacked by people who, in fact, uh, back in the day were actually big supporters of his. So I think there's a lot of ironic changes that have gone on. And anyway, so this brings us pretty close to the present. And, uh, you know, more recently, I've been a, you know, a defender of some of the populist impulses uh, that were represented by uh, Donald Trump. I think Donald Trump was not only a good pre- uh, conservative president, I think he was a great libertarian president compared to the ones who have come most recently before him. Donald Trump slashed regulations, didn't start any new wars, which if you think about it, is remarkable. And you have to go back at least as far as Reagan and maybe a bit earlier to find another president who didn't start uh, a major U.S. intervention. So um, I, I think there's you know some interesting things going on in our politics right now. Uh, it does seem as if a very aggressive kind of left-wing uh, political correctness is being forced onto people. And uh, I think, you know, Americans across the board are rejecting this. I think one of the interesting things in the last election in 2020 was seeing that uh, a lot of Latinos, for example, they really didn't like, you know, the sort of Bernie Sanders drift of the Democratic Party. They didn't like, you know, the sort of uh, multiculturalist and, uh, you know, sort of uh, anti-police pro-criminal drift of uh, uh, the Democratic Party as well. And so I think you're starting to see, you know, a lot of just groups all around the place starting to question exactly where their political commitments should lie. Yeah, no, I hear you. Um, so you consider yourself a traditional, uh, a traditional conservatism, a uh, conservative. Can you kind of uh, for the audience that doesn't know and and even for the people that might have uh, that, that might know some of this stuff, can you lay out a a a kind of a timeline from. The, the intellectual thinkers and players of how, you know, it jumps to how we get to where we're at now. So I know that's maybe a little, but if you could do it kind of uh, in, a, in a, like summarize it, some like, hey, these were the first ones, this, this, and it jumps to this. And, and I'm still a part of this lineage of um, conservative thought because there's a lot of types, which we'll get into. Yeah, you know, a lot of people think uh, that America has always been a liberal country in one sense or another. It was maybe founded upon uh, classical liberalism by Jefferson and Madison and George Washington and so forth. And um, I think it's actually a little more complicated than that, because the labels liberal and conservative don't start getting used even in Europe until after the French Revolution, which, of course, happens after the U.S. Revolution. And, um, you know, the words conservative and liberal, when they're first used in, in Europe in the 1820s and 1830s, really do refer to uh, people's attitudes towards the changes that the French Revolution has started to introduce in Europe. And uh, people who call themselves liberals, they're on the side of uh, sort of anti-clericalism, getting rid of uh, the privileges of the church, for example. They're on the side of getting rid of the aristocracy and the uh, of monarchs and so forth. Um, so they have, you know, some democratic tendencies, but it's not necessarily democracy that the liberals were aiming for initially. Um, you know, sometimes it would be a more sort of, um, you know, just uh, people with uh, large amounts of wealth or large amounts of property would be the ones who get to have a say in voting as opposed to having a democracy that was for a wider group of people or for everyone. And uh, the conservatives tended to be the people who uh, certainly saw that there were problems with uh, unmitigated monarchical power, for example, or with intolerance in uh, an established religion. But the conservatives thought that you know, there, these, should, they, these things should be reformed as opposed to completely destroyed and, su- and swept away, partly because once you get into the business of demolishing things, Um, It turns out that revolutionaries don't really know where to stop. They keep demolishing more and more stuff. And eventually, you know, in order to reimpose order on society, they wind up creating a very um, sort of regimented and uh, authoritarian or even totalitarian new order. And you see this with the Bolshevik Revolution, ultimately, uh, in Russia, 
where, you know, the Soviet, the, the appeal of the Soviet Union and the appeal of Bolshevism and communism was meant to be, oh, this is going to be freedom. We're not going to have the czar anymore. Won't that be great? And we're going to have, you know, a wider distribution of property and we're going to have, you know, employment for everyone. Aren't all these things really, really good? Isn't that what everybody wants? And of course, what you actually get is a dictatorship, not a dictatorship of the proletariat, but a dictatorship by the party and ultimately by someone like Stalin. So conservatives in Europe, uh, you know, back in the 1820s and 1830s, they were, you know, sort of moderate supporters of the sort of old order in Europe. And they were, they were critical of revolutionary attempts to change it. In America, you kind of saw some parallel developments that you had uh, people like. What was know, the old order? Was that like mostly monarch? monarch? Yeah, basically okay. monarchs with established churches and things like that. So the conservatives were, you know, they, they said, OK, there are some abuses here. We need to reform them. But we don't want to just have a completely new system you know, right away. Now, America, of course, uh, you know, from the founding and then from the, uh, the Constitution, it didn't have an established national church. It was not a monarchy. But you did have Americans such as uh, John Adams, members of the Federalist Party, who were very critical of the French Revolution and who thought that a you know, sort of French revolutionary spirit in America would be very destructive if it tried to you know, sort of overturn property rights or overturn the family and things like that. And somewhat, in a somewhat paranoid fashion, they thought that Thomas Jefferson, for example, was a, uh, you know, a radical like Robespierre in France. And Jefferson wasn't. Jefferson often talked like a radical, but he wasn't really uh, the lunatic that a lot of the French revolutionaries were. Um, anyway, so that gives you a, a little bit of a sense of, you know, kind of the really, you know, far back late 18th century, early 19th century origins of conservatism and liberalism. But of course, more recently, these terms have come to have very different meanings. And um, really, the revival in the idea of conservatism being a label that Americans would apply to themselves is something that happens uh, in the 19, late 1940s and 1950s. And it happens because Americans, or at least some of the sort of intellectual leaders in America, are very disillusioned by World War II. Uh, first of all, by the fact that the war happens in the first place, that you know uh, all of Western civilization goes into this massive conflagration and destructive you know, orgy of destruction. And they say, what went wrong such that this had to happen? And obviously something tremendous went wrong in Germany with Nazism, but something had also gone wrong in the West and that, you know, they didn't see what was going to happen in Germany and that the West, you know, itself was creating, you know, things like the nuclear bomb in order to you know, fight the war. It just seemed as if, you know, the highest civilization that uh, the world had ever produced in terms of its technological finesse had also become, you know, the most destructive civilization the world had ever seen in terms of its capacity to just kill millions of people. So um, conservatism in the 1950s was an attempt to say, OK, something has gone wrong, not just in the last 10 or 15 or 20 years. It's gone wrong, you know, going back maybe a century or more. And so they started looking back the people who you know, identified as conservatives like Russell Kirk. Um, they started looking back to uh, thinkers like Edmund Burke, for example, who was one of the early critics of the French Revolution and was you know, identified as a conservative in, uh, in Britain. And so that's traditional conservatism, that it starts to say, OK, um, you know, liberalism makes the mistake of putting too much emphasis on human rationality, too much emphasis on our ability to improve things by sort of uh, figuring out how to make completely new systems and completely new orders that are going to be better than the things we've inherited. And conservatism says instead of, you know, uh, getting uh, excessively uh, into reforms and, and renovations, we need to proceed more slowly and generally, um, you know, cherish the things that exist because, uh, it's actually, you know, usually if you get rid of the things that exist, what you wind up with isn't something better. It's actually something far worse, reduced to barbarism. Yeah, I, um, uh, I'm a sports fan. And, and when I hear, you know, commentators say, oh, they're, you know, they're playing conservative or they're playing, you know, liberal or stuff like that. I mean, 
So like conservative is more defensive, right? I mean, it's more defensive of, of your, of, of your structure of play, you know, your strategy. And then, you know, the other side, or, you know, it's not that it's not structured, but they're going to have a little bit more free play to, to play. Um, uh, I always like to incorporate sports because that's something that uh, I uh, grew up uh, knowing, but also I know that um, when you're on the front foot or when you're playing on the front foot or more offensive, sometimes beautiful things come out of that, you know? Um, and, and, uh, what do you say that maybe being defensive or more conservative that, uh, that freedom isn't allowed, that type of uh, play isn't allowed to, uh, and have new things come out of it. Um, or, 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 or am I wrong to think that, or, or, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, I'm, yeah. trying, I'm trying to ask a little bit. Can you no, yeah, that's actually a great metaphor you brought up. So, um, you know, obviously a team can't win if it always plays defense. And, um, you know, conservatives, I think, can be rightly accused of sometimes being too defensive, uh, you know, too much in favor of things that exist and not taking enough initiative. And conservatives have to, I think, uh, challenge themselves not to fall into just reaffirming the routine. They have to actually try to be creative. It's one of the big challenges they face, actually. And, um, you know, I think the, the great thing about conservatism is that when you combine conservatism with creativity, then you get the best of both worlds. And what, um, you know, conservatism is useful as a sort of restraint, as something that makes you see that, okay, things can go wrong as well as getting better. But conservatism by itself is probably not enough. So you have to have that creative element, which can balance it and can push things forward. And it's one of the nice things about, you know, the kind of political system that, you know, if you do really have competitive parties, with uh, different points of view and, and, you know, one party is more conservative and one party is more progressive or liberal, then they can have a little bit of that, you know, sort of interplay and exchange. And maybe you get the best of both worlds, although sometimes you also get the worst of both worlds. No, that's for sure. I, uh, I like to say that um, I'm a, I'm a, a, a libertarian at large, a, a, a liberal at heart, but a conservative in play. Hey, what's up everyone. Uh, thanks for, uh, checking out the show be sure to support our efforts here by checking out paloma verde cbd.com it is a uh, online store that my wife and i uh, run and um, you get 25 percent off by using the promo code chingasos and just in case you guys don't know um, it's not in my nature to be interviewing people like this but if you like what i'm putting out just know that i'm on some cbd you know I take a gummy about an hour before I know I'm going to do the show. And about 20 minutes before the show, I'll take some drops, just takes the edge off, and then I just get into it. So if that's something that sounds like, oh, in your life, you do some other stuff that might benefit you to take the edge off before you get into some shit, try some CBD products. So uh, go to palomaverdecbd.com, use the promo code Chingasos, get 25% off anything in the store. Peace. You know, um, but... Um, uh, I've heard you mention that um, that uh, uh, that libertarianism is the uh, the political form of free markets, and what I heard you say that on a, on an interview that you had, and I don't know, I mean uh, that that kind of blew my mind, but in a good way because I was like, yeah, I guess it is. It is kind of how somebody that mostly likes the idea of economics and and, and how economics makes sense to them and how they see the world would form a, a, a type of a political thinking that that can explain it to be able to get into the game of politics and say, hey, we're libertarians or that. Can you kind of uh, uh, also anybody that 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 thinks of conservatism 
tends to sometimes uh, put together libertarian and conservatism together. They're kind of in the same camp. Can you kind of uh, distinguish a little bit, uh, talk about the history of uh, libertarianism? Because the show here is called, you know, Los Libertinos. But really, you know, you, you would make the case that you'd want to have conservatinos. So there's a difference in so, but you know, it's okay. We, we, we all, we all get to play here. And, uh, and, uh, can you kind of talk on that a little bit uh, of, of all these all interplay a little bit? Yeah, those are great points. And, you know, one thing I always try to emphasize is that people should not get hung up on labels, you know? So it's not about what you call yourself. It's actually about what you believe and what you do. And, um, you know, you can have a set of principles and you don't necessarily have to, you know, make them conform to what everyone else is saying or make them conform to, some sort of one single standard and use that as, um, uh, you know, kind of uh, a robotic, uh, you know, program for addressing politics or addressing life. Politics is generally about rules, of course. I mean, ultimately, politics involves making laws and whatnot. The reason why I say I think libertarianism is the political form of free market economics is because libertarians would say, well, most of the rules we need are the ones that the market already provides. They're the, the, the logic of, you know, sort of um, free exchange and, uh, you know, of buying and selling and of, uh, you know, employers, employees, those things kind of naturally lend themselves to uh, a just settlement. Uh, because, you know, I mean, when you buy something, it is just, right? If you are, as long as there's no fraud, if you say, I want to buy an apple and, and you're selling an orange, uh, you know, or, or rather I'm selling an orange and I want to buy an apple, um, you know, we can just make the exchange. We're both going to be better off because we get the thing we want in exchange for the thing we wanted less. Um, so there is a, a certain natural justice to market transactions, and uh, libertarians, I think, are very smart to uh, understand that. Uh, the trouble then becomes, uh, are those transactions the only kinds of relationships that people should have or the only kinds that matter in politics? And so I think conservatism, uh, you know, to the extent that it is wise, tries to uh, include some um, some of the considerations that economics usually doesn't look at. So economics uh, tends not to look at um, why people are making the choices they make. It just says, we're going to take the fact that they make choices and extrapolate some conclusions from that. If you look at why they're making those choices, then it becomes a question of kind of what forms, uh, you know, sort of people's impressions and opinions, uh, their character and ideas. And those are the things that I think conservatives start to be very concerned about, because I think conservatives ultimately think that whatever forms those impressions, forms those opinions and ideas, that's going to have tremendous consequences for whether or not people actually do follow market rules and whether or not they follow, you know, any kind of rules or whether they, you know, have, um, you know, maybe, maybe they start succumbing to totalitarian rules because they, um, you know, have, uh, you know, inculcated a, or absorbed a totalitarian mindset. So I think conservatism is a little more concerned about sociology and psychology uh, and not purely concerned about economics as, as, uh, as singularly as libertarianism is. Oh, okay. I hear you. Um, yeah. And I'm going to, always kind of track back to sports because it's just the, the way I think on a lot of things. And, you know, leading up to this, uh, you know, to this interview, you know, I, you, I play the interview out in my head and I, I think of different ways to, to, to come at you a little bit. Uh, um, so what I was thinking was that uh, my favorite sport is uh, football or soccer and it kind of comes off, um, which is okay that all the players on the field are liberal in in different ways and uh, the goal is for them to like you said in, in politics make goals make laws and this and that but the the refereeing crew is the conservative crew they're, they're they're the ones there that are meant to uh call you know call balls call strikes call this like you're not opposed or 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 you're 
how would I say it? The you want to follow the rules because you're the referees there, but you also aren't necessarily saying that the rules that 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 they're well, I don't know. Maybe you are that they have to like maybe at that whatever like uh, maybe in that game the rules are the rules, but if the crowd and the 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 culture uh, whistle and 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 try to give the uh, pressure on the ref to a hey, you can't keep calling that foul. That's we've already moved on from that. That's that used to be a foul back in the you know, but you know, you know, the, the, the crowd gives the, the pressure to the refs to call it differently. Uh, I kind of see it like that way. And, um, you know, that's why I've always kind of said that, um, when people want to ask me, Oh, you know, for a long time, people would tell me that, Oh, you know, you must be a lefty. You must like, people didn't figure me out or couldn't figure me out because, you know, I wasn't saying that I wasn't principled. I was just like, Hey, uh, whatever, like freedom touches on a lot of stuff or Liberty touches on a lot of things. And you don't have to like, uh, stick to one. So I was always playing on a, on, on, on a big field. Um, am I right to think that in a game, the, the, the referees are, 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 are in the way that you're saying, like what conservatives are like uh, calling the fouls, calling this a being sure that everybody that's playing on the field at least has some structure to the rules or something like that. Does my question make sense a little bit? Oh, totally. No, I think, I mean, not only does it make sense, but actually, um, Surprisingly enough, now this will, you know, this will sound almost backwards, but um, you've actually hit upon an idea, which is one of the good ideas, not one of the bad ideas, it's one of the good ideas of Thomas Hobbes. Now, that may seem surprising because people hear the name Thomas Hobbes, they think of Viathan, they think of big government. But in fact, you know, one of Hobbes's ideas is that- I don't know who he is. Well, he's a a 17th century uh, English political theorist. Okay. And he's someone that a lot of libertarians really don't like because- um, he uh, again, he writes a book about uh, basically, you know, sort of consolidated power and libertarians. You know, his book, uh, Leviathan, has become uh, a byword for big government. And so people think of him as just being this horrible authoritarian. But in fact, um, one of his points is exactly the one you've made, which is the idea is that you need to have a ref. You need to have someone who, uh, you know, sets down the rules, make sure that everyone knows what the rules are and then enforces those rules fairly. And then as long as you have a ref, then people can be free to play the game and to, you know, move around on the field and to kick the ball and to score. And I think that's a great metaphor for how freedom should work, that you do need to have, you know, some authority that's able to provide, you know, some rules and and structure to make sure that everyone is playing by the same set of rules. But uh, once you have that, then you should let let the players play. You should not have the refs telling the players, oh, you need to go over here, you need to go over there. You know, here's when you can kick the ball and here's when you can't. If you have too many rules, the game stops being fun at all. Uh, so instead, you need to have the right balance, which is hard to, to reach between, uh, you know, fair rules that are strongly enforced and uh, leaving the players free enough to be able to uh, not only play the game well for themselves, but also for the enjoyment of everyone who's watching the game, too. Exactly. And for anybody in the stands to get uh, inspired to start their own games and, 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 and to use that as, a, as, a, as an example to say, hey, we can. We can all kind of, I don't know, sounds kind of hippie, get along and, and play the game. No, that's, if, uh, that's you... exactly right, though. You need to have a political system that allows people to be excellent. And that's going to mean there's going to be competition. And if there's competition, there might be winners and losers. But if you don't have excellence, people are not going to be inspired. And so I think a lot of people on the left, a lot of more egalitarian types, they think, well, um, you know, excellence is unfair because some people are actually better, you know, football players, better soccer players than others are. And so... Uh, you know, it's really unfair if some players are winning and other players are losing. And instead, 
we should make a game where there are no winners or losers. Everyone just gets, you know, there, there's, there's only one goal. There aren't opposing <laughs> goals. Everyone just kicks the ball in. And, you know, and that would be, it's no fun and it doesn't inspire anyone. And that inspiration is really important because it's inspiration. You know, you may have people who are different in terms of their abilities to begin with, but that inspiration makes people take where they are in terms of their abilities and try to aim higher because they're inspired. They want to actually go farther. And so even the people who are already excellent become better as a result of competition and, and excellence and inspiration. And the people who aren't as good, they have a, you know, a motive, a motivation, incentive to go out there and learn the skills and to practice and to become much better than they are to begin with. And then you wind up with a game that's sort of more enjoyable for everyone, for the players, for the spectators. And it's a virtuous cycle, whereas the alternative of trying to make things fair by making everyone as mediocre as possible is uh, disastrous. And that's true in a socialist economy. And that's true, of course, uh, in contrast, you have a capitalist competitive economy. There is, uh, you know, a lot of inspiration and a lot of uh, enjoyment. That's funny. As you as you were saying that, I started having a vision of the uh, in the in the in the stands. There always there there always be the the peaceful hooligan libertarians, right? Always there, the hooligans just always being there to just talk a little shit about all the games. Hey, you guys are still doing it wrong, but hey, that's just the the nature of uh, of, of 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 a certain small amount of people that are always gonna. Well, that's right. Yeah, I think you know libertarianism sometimes seems like they're just the guys who. Uh, you know, want to criticize whatever the ref is doing, right? And the question is, well, if they were the ref, would every call they make be correct? No. So, I mean, um, there can be, you know, I think a fair criticism made that libertarians are sometimes a little too much on the sidelines. On the other hand, you know, it is good to have someone criticizing the referees because otherwise the refs might make a lot of bad calls and no one's going to, you know, put pressure on them to, to change. So, uh, speaking of, uh, and I like how we're playing with this, but this is, this is, this is, this is going to make a lot of sense to a lot of people on, in that, of my audience that might not know a lot of this stuff, but this type of connections, they're going to know what, what's up with uh, what we're talking about. Um, so speaking of conservative uh, refs that might've uh, gone astray, um, I heard you in a, in a, in a, in a podcast interview and uh, we have something in common. Uh, uh, you and I both voted for John Kerry in 2004. I, um, that was my first presidential uh, uh, vote. And at the time I wasn't political, but I was starting to watch HBO's Bill Maher. So that's how I got into politics was through the through the Bill Marshall uh, show on Friday nights. You know, I would just I would just watch it. You know, um, uh, uh, after 9-11, I, I started paying more attention because I was kind of like, hey, something in the some, something's going to change in the world here. And and it did, you know, and all these wars started coming. But um, but <clears throat> what was unique on that one, and I remember it was that his 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 vice presidential uh, uh, guy uh, was his name, uh, Edwards. He was the first one that I ever heard, but I didn't even know what it meant. I would just hear him say the word and it was in a, in a way that he would use it to criticize the Bush administration. And even before when he was in the running in the, in the primaries, he would use it, but he would say, he would use his word. He would say, Oh, they're just neocons. And ne and you know, that was the first time I ever heard this word, but I was, I never looked it up because I don't know. I mean, I guess, you know, I was young. I, I wasn't going to go look up what neocons were, but I just know that. He would use this word to kind of like talk shit about the people like, you know, and, but whatever he was, however he was saying it and whatever that word meant, a lot of it of what he was saying rang true to whatever at the time I was thinking. I was like, yeah, you know what? These neocons are kind of assholes and I don't know what, what, what he's talking about. Whatever he explained it, it makes sense to me. Um, can you speak a little bit of because um, uh, and the, through the Ron Paul campaign, that was the next time I heard it again was the neocons, the neocons, the neocons. And 
And um, I never really stopped uh, uh, hearing about it. So from what I know is that they, again, maybe were come from the school of the conservative thought, but also they came from the school of like, they might've had leanings towards favoring the liberal players of the game and not calling, you know, uh, strikes and balls how they should have. And they were trying to get on the field of play instead of being the ones. Can you kind of explain what neoconservatism is and the history behind it and how, uh, when people think of conservatism now, they might, uh, uh, interlock those two and just, can you kind of, uh, talk a little bit about that? Yeah. You know, the first generation of neocons, uh, they had been Democrats. They had been liberals back in the late 1960s and early 1970s. And the Democratic Party of that time seemed to be taking a very radical turn. In fact, the Democratic Party of the late 60s and early 70s is kind of reminiscent of the radical parts of the Democratic Party now in terms of they weren't saying uh, things like um, abolish the police or defund the police back then, but they certainly were on the side of protesters against the police. The police were you know, pretty tough on the protesters. And the Democratic Party was kind of coming apart at the seams because you know, a lot of their voters wanted to support the police and a lot of their voters wanted to support the protesters. And this is the civil rights era. It's the Vietnam era. There's all kinds of really, you know, sort of heavy topics in American politics at that time. Also, um, a lot of progressives, a lot of, uh, you know, people in the Democratic Party, they were very opposed to the Vietnam War, which I think is smart because the Vietnam War was a bad idea. But in, in opposing the Vietnam War, they weren't just, you know, critical of the fact that America was fighting this war and, and you know, it was a war that we weren't serious about winning. They also didn't like the fact that, uh, you know, uh, America was in, sort of impeding a communist takeover of Vietnam. So they, in some ways, were more sympathetic to the other side. This is the era, by the way, when people like Che Guevara become big heroes to uh, the political left in places like America. And uh, of course, you know, a lot of these leftists had no idea about uh, the crimes that Cuban communists were actually committing or that Che Guevara wanted to export to other parts of Latin America and Africa. And so, and uh, quite, um, you know, sort of... Um, either socialistic or so anti-Western that, you know, it was just, uh, you know, in favor of uh, various kinds of violence around the world. And so a lot of the, you know, more, more mainstream Democrats started to leave the Democratic Party. And this is actually why you see Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan win by such huge margins back in the 70s and 80s. It's because a lot of people had left the Democratic Party. And some of the intellectuals who left the Democratic Party and came to the Republican Party, um, they wound up becoming what's called the neoconservatives. And uh, they maintained some of their old liberal views. They tended to still support the welfare state, for example. They basically supported everything that had been a component of liberalism up until the time of JFK and uh, Lyndon Johnson in the 1960s. They supported all that, but they didn't support the radical direction that the left had taken after that. So at first, a lot of conservatives thought, well, you know, um, these neoconservatives, um, they're not, you know, Barry Goldwater supporters. They're not really, you know, small government people like some of us are. But uh, but they're still, you know, they support common sense. They're not, you know, bad people. Um, so a lot of these neoconservatives were welcomed into the conservative movement. The trouble is that once they got into the conservative movement, these neocons then started to kick other people out. They started saying, oh, you Barry Goldwater supporters, you know, you're too libertarian. You want uh, too small of a, uh, uh, you know, a state. We need to have, uh, you know, um, Republicans need to embrace, uh, you know, sort of welfareism and things like that, or at least, you know, part of welfareism. And or, so we, or they might have even said that he didn't support the Civil Rights Act, right? Or something like that would have yeah, been something although, like although, that. Yeah, that's right. Although, you know, there was a lot of, um, you know, it was less of a tripwire back then. But yeah, uh, things like that would have been, you know, the, the same kind of things that they would bring up. So there was a lot of uh, dispute between the sort of older conservatives and the neoconservatives. Uh, 
And, um, and that created a lot of bad blood. So in the 1980s, there were, you know, a lot of arguments between them. The neoconservatives also still had a lot of the foreign policy views that characterized the Democratic Party in the early part of the Cold War and also in, uh, you know, the administration of Woodrow Wilson, for example, during World War I. And those foreign policy views that used to be part of the Democratic Party and, the, in the, you know, in the 70s and 80s became part of the neocons, uh, those were foreign policy views about, you know, sort of going abroad, uh, you know, defeating dictatorships and building democracies and things like that, which in the case of World War II, you know, you can make a very good case for, of course. But in the case of, you know, things like World War I or most other wars, these efforts, you know, are very idealistic and they don't wind up producing good results. They wind up producing chaos and, in fact, you know, a road to the next war. So the neocons were big supporters of things like the first Gulf War in 1991. And then as soon as 9-11 happens uh, 20 years ago, they become supporters of the war on terror. And they are, you know, the biggest cheerleaders for going to war, not just in Afghanistan, but also in Iraq. And uh, the George W. Bush foreign policy is basically a neoconservative foreign policy. And that was something that, uh, you know, a lot of people on the left opposed. But it was also something that people on the old right, such as myself, uh, were very opposed to as well. Hey, what's up, everyone? If you like any of this content from Daniel McCarthy, please be sure to hit the link below and join his five-part webinar series at Renegade University on conservatism. Uh, You'll still be able to make some live events. Uh, There's still two or three left, so um, uh, you can get in that way. And if you are watching this episode in the future, you could still buy the, the, the class and get all of the content that's in there and um, support his efforts, my efforts on the show. And uh, we're all trying to better ourselves and understand different perspectives. And his, has to, his happens to be conservatism. So check that out. Hit the link below and uh, join the class. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, also, there, uh, another, I guess, one of their planks or something that they support, but I remember this too, um, was that uh, George W. Bush, I don't know what year, maybe his first or second term, you know, he also supported uh, immigration reform. And that's something that Latinos at the time, I don't remember exactly how it went down because I would have not maybe has, you know, paid a a lot of attention to it, but I'm assuming that they would have thought, okay, well, we don't like him mostly because, you know, we're Democrats or liberal, but if he's doing that, okay, well, we'll take it. But I remember that there was a lot of pushback um, uh, on that, on that end, probably from, traditional conservatives or, 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 or things like that. What does uh, the traditional conservative or, or you uh, being the editor in chief of modern age, like what do you guys say of our current immigration or the past immigration? And, and what do you guys see for, for like immigration policy and, and all of that? Because uh, I have a lot of people on, on my end that are interested on that. Yeah. I think it's fair to say that uh, traditional conservatives tend to be on the restrictionist side of immigration questions uh, they're generally for reducing the amount of immigration overall. Uh, they certainly are about, you know, sort of enforcing the law to prevent illegal immigration. And, um, you know, uh, George W. Bush was someone they disliked in part because, uh, you know, he had uh, relatively well open borders policies, or at least, you know, sort of relatively um, liberal or lax border policies. Um, that's not true, you know, universally. Uh, there are, you know, sort of traditional conservatives who take a sort of, uh, you know, a, a more uh, generous line, perhaps, towards immigration, who want more immigration, in some cases for economic reasons, uh, in other cases, just as, you know, a kind of humanitarian uh, demand. But I think in general, one of the things that traditional conservatives do 
is to point out that while there may be lots of economic benefits to immigration, there can also be some downsides in terms of, well, the way in which, first of all, new immigrants and new immigrant communities tend to be manipulated by Democrats. You know, so they vote for Democrats and you get all the bad policies that come with the Democrats. And um, there are reasons for this. I mean, this was true even going back, you know, long before you had the present political configurations, even when the Democrats were the party of segregation. And, you know, even before that, the Democrats tended to have an advantage with new immigrants in places like New York City, for example. And uh, we can we can talk a little bit about why that is. I mean, yeah, actually, actually, yeah. I mean, I I was about to ask you, like, why is that? Is it because you said right now it was a manipulation. So they've just been been manipulating, but it can't all be that right i mean is there something it's not all that right um so go ahead yeah yeah go ahead so part of it is you know i mean if the democrats are doing better outreach then obviously that helps but some of it is manipulation too in that you know if you are as as we saw with the waves of uh, immigration in the early 20th century from italy and from other parts of uh, southern europe and from eastern europe as well uh the democrats were generally the party of providing as many services and benefits as possible to these new waves of immigrants and that won them a lot of loyalty among these immigrant communities. It's why Italian-Americans, uh, Irish-Americans, for a long time, they were identified as being rock-solid Democratic constituencies, the same way that a lot of people right now think of Latinos as having to be a Democratic constituency. And of course, what happened is that things change over time. And uh, you know, uh, as new immigrant communities actually become much more established, at least in terms of their you know, sort of large-scale population. Or, or assimilated. Assimilated, yeah. Um, but even, even you know, and assimilation is a, a tough question, right? Because sometimes it can run both ways. Um, and, you know, cultures change. So it's not the case that there's always, you know, sort of one unique thing that people are assimilating to. But yeah, as people, you know, become more sort of uh, assimilated as, you know, sort of both, you know, the, the newcomers and the older population kind of, uh, you know, become uh, more closely entangled in terms of their family, in terms of their economics, etc., then, you know, it starts to become, I think, more clear to these populations that, hey, maybe the Democrats are not actually doing such a good thing by giving these benefits and services, because what we actually need are opportunities as opposed to, uh, you know, benefits and services. So I think that's why you see uh, groups like the Italian-Americans and the Irish-Americans have, you know, over time drifted away from being strongly, you know, affiliated with the Democrats. Today, I think they're about 50-50. And I think you're going to see the same thing with uh, Latinos as well over time. Um, you said manipulation and outreach. So why hasn't there been a natural tendency just to do way more outreach by the conservatives? There's been some, but it's usually been done uh, very badly. So, but know, why? You know what I'm saying? So why doesn't it just come naturally? Like, hey, let's go get these people. You know, they're going to come anyway. Yeah, or they're coming anyway. Because the conservatives are often approaching them um, as if, you know, as if conservatives are embarrassed to be themselves. And I think Donald Trump is a great example of this, right? So before Donald Trump, the conservative appeal to Latinos was always, well, we're going to sound just like the progressives, just like the liberals. We're going to say, you know, wonderful things about, uh, you know, multiculturalism. We're going to say wonderful things about, uh, you know, um, the idea that we need, you know, sort of uh, economic revivification by, you know, having new uh, immigrants come here. We're just going to sound exactly like the, the Democrats, only we're not going to offer you the benefits that the Democrats offer. And of course, you know, if you're a relatively new population in the country and you're hearing the same thing from both parties, but then one, one side is saying we're going to be much more uh, generous in terms of what we're giving out. Um, any common sense person would go for those who are going to be more generous in terms of what they're giving out. Um, Donald Trump, on the other hand, uh, in what he did in 2020, which was quite remarkable, he was able to win over a pretty sizable chunk of the Latino vote. And he did it by still being Republican, by still being a, you know, sort of hard right 
you know, conservative type who says that, you know, he's still going to enforce border restrictions and he's still going to, you know, uh, be uh, someone who's, you know, not in favor of a lot of refugee status visas and things like that. And yet Donald Trump was also very clear that, you know, America is a land of opportunity and it's a land in which law abiding citizens are going to be protected and criminals are going to be the ones sent to jail. And I think a lot of Latinos uh, responded to that message and they said, you know what, this is what we want. We obey the law. We work hard. We want to be rewarded for that work. And uh, we don't want, you know, the Democratic Party with its, you know, sort of um, uh, its soft line towards urban crime. We don't want the Democratic Party to be, you know, sort of running our neighborhoods. We want to have more Republicans in charge of the country. Yeah, no, I hear you. Yeah, it's um, the immigration one's an interesting one, right? It gets it's uh, well, it's interesting, but I, I still haven't figured it out yet. Uh, I had a. Uh, my uh, my last guest was uh, Alex Narashta from the Cato Institute. He's like their immigration guy. And, uh, you know, he brings up some points and there's different things. And the, the good thing is that there's a, a at least in, 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 in conservative or libertarian circles, there's, 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 there's this, uh, a debate. There's a lot of debate. And uh, for the most part, I, 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 I don't hear it as like, uh, like ugly uh, just from anybody, you know, people that want to be ugly can be ugly about when they get into this, into the, into these conversations. But for the most part, it really is, uh, about, uh, people want to just take care of whoever's here now and not want new people. But, you know, you bring in things like, well, they become Democrat voters or, you know, things like that. And then it becomes political. But, you know, I guess I, I tend to, to side with like, you know, somebody that's coming from far, if they're coming illegally. If they're coming from, you know, if they're going to travel all this way and and sacrifice a lot of things, I mean, they're not even thinking about what party they're going to vote for when they get here. You know, they're just trying to escape whatever they got going on over there. But, you know, I mean, it it, uh, it is what it is. But um, uh, for uh, uh, a point of assimilation is that uh, uh, I'm third generation. So as my, my parents came here then. Oh, no, I'm second. But um Recently, I took because my dad said, you know, they vote Democrat and mostly just because uh, for the immigration stuff. And um, but I had told him I told him I was like that they're not going to do anything on immigration because they need to always leverage and have that as a as, as a as a political uh, 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 ball to, to always play with. And they're not going to do it. Like, oh, no, they're going to do it. And I said, well, look, I was like, let's make a deal because because uh, I guess Biden said, oh, I'm going to do something in my in a hundred days, I'm going to pass immigration reform. I said, okay, let's make a deal. If he doesn't do it in a hundred days, you don't ever vote for a, a Democrat again in a presidential election. And, you know, he didn't do it. And he goes, okay, well, I guess I won't ever vote. So mm. it doesn't mean that he's going to vote Republican, but you see like, so somebody was able to get one Democrat voter away from, uh, but anyway, but you know, that's just a little uh, side, side story there. Yeah. And what you say about, you know, well-intentioned immigrants who, you know, work hard and they make their way to the United States and they want to come in in order to work and to raise a family. And, you know, they it's not that they necessarily, you know, sort of idolize John Wayne and want to become, you know, just like, you know, Captain America or something. But they certainly do respect, uh, you know, some of the fundamentals that America offers to everyone. They want to be part of that. And that's a good thing. Um, I think that's right. But you also have to just look at, you know, kind of uh, if you have large numbers of people coming in like that. And what are the effects, you know, that come out of it as well? Just as you have to inform policy, not just look at the intentions that go into a war, because if you say, hey, we need to have a war because this guy's a dictator. Once we get rid of him, everything's going to be great. You have to actually look at the the situation that emerges after you get rid of that dictator 
and say, okay, uh, does the result match the intention? And similarly, you know, having people with good intentions as immigrants is wonderful, but then you have to ask, okay, what are the results in terms of the way in which uh, our economy develops based on this? Um, it does seem to me that one of the big problems that our country has right now is that there's a tendency for the elite or the ruling class, and this is true of a lot of Republicans as well as Democrats. I think it's true of a lot of libertarians as well. They just want to write off all the people who are already here. And by that, I don't mean, you know, people of a particular ethnic background. I mean, the whites, the blacks, the Latinos, everyone is being simply written off as, uh, well, you know, we'll give you some handouts and you can vote for us, but we don't really expect you to do any, you know, to, to be the working, you know, sort of component of America. So instead, we're going to outsource our industry to other countries and we're going to, you know, bring in replacements for labor to, you know, come into U.S. and do the work. And uh, I think that is a strategy if you're the elites because you want to make a lot of money by simply cutting out the middle, right? So if you're able to bring in workers who are earning less than before, you make some money by not paying people so much. If you're able to export your industries to a foreign country where there are few reg fewer regulations and lower wages, you're able to make money that way as well. But these are sort of artificial gains. And what you really should be having are um, gains as a result of skill and as a result of investing more in building up the skills and the excellence of all of the people already in the country. And again, that includes, you know, white Americans, black Americans, Latino Americans, Asian Americans, the whole gamut. And uh, that's what I would like to see our elites focus on more is making sure that Americans are skilled, that they are able to get good experience through hard work, and that they're therefore able to make our country more productive than ever, as opposed to trying to gain, get product productivity gains by turning to the rest of the world. Yeah, no, um, I hear you. Um, yeah, no, I guess I would be guilty of that. I, 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 I do that as someone that would, that would say, and, you know, I mean, I don't have, you know, it is what it is. I mean, uh, I'm probably wrong, maybe, you know, but I'll, I'm someone that will say, you know, Hey, you know, if you can't get the same job that someone that doesn't even speak the, the native language and they're still getting the work, it doesn't have to do with laws or something like that. You know, some people, they might just sweat a little bit more outside than, uh, and put a little bit more ganas in. That doesn't have to do with anything other than, I don't know what to tell you, but so, so, no, no, I, I, you, know, you know, I'm saying like, you know, like, you know, so I, I'm guilty of that, but Hey, at the street level, you know, I work in construction. So at the street level, you know, Hey, there, there is no, uh, there is no immigration policy debate. It's like, Hey, the, the jobs are there, but for some reason they get filled in and, and these are, and these are legal, these are legal people. So this is legal. So there tends to be a, uh, at least at the, I guess you would say, uh, not as skilled, but to me, a lot of these guys are pretty skilled that, that do a lot of this, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm, I work in concrete and these are a lot of skilled guys that, you know, that, you know, I mean, I think they're pretty skilled, but, um, but there tends to be a shade of color that is, that it's mostly, and it's not the other shade of color. And, you know, that doesn't have to do with anything about somebody stealing their jobs or whatever. I mean, they're there if, if somebody wants them, but. They tend, no, and that's okay, that's you know, yeah. you know. Yeah. And, you know, it's, um, the question becomes sort of what happens to, uh, you know, future generations. So there was a time when exactly the same uh, situation you've just described was true, only it was going to be Italian immigrants or it was going to be immigrants from Eastern Europe. Uh, and now, you know, it's immigrants from Latin America. That's fine. That's not a, a bad reflection on, you know, people from any of those lands. The question is, however, you know, are the elites in our country ultimately going to write off the uh, descendants of these people. So you come in, you work hard, you do good stuff. And then, you know, um, what is it that happens once you've been in our, our country for a long time? 
that makes it such that um, people who don't speak the language or who have whatever you know background uh, you might mention, who you know come in afresh, are suddenly better workers, uh, you know, especially for these kinds of jobs than you are. And uh, one question I think that you know just our our culture should you know be more honest about and de- should debate more openly is you know do we want uh, Americans to be able to do these jobs? And again, Americans of all races and backgrounds. I'm not trying to say that there's some sort of ethnic uh, dimension there. But do we think that, you know, um, we want America to be able to do its own, uh, you know, pour its own concrete, which, again, is it is skill. I mean, this is certainly something you don't want a, a D.C. intellectual or something to try doing. It's going to be a mess. Um, no, you want to have. So the question is, you know, are, is our country going to continue to provide, uh, you know, jobs for hardworking, especially men? Right. Uh, because one of the problems in our country right now is that you've got a lot of men in, uh, you know, a lot of Rust Belt states who used to have jobs, you know, sort of working on the auto assembly line and whatnot. And as those jobs go away, it's not clear that our country and our elites really are creating something that's going to replace those jobs at, a, at an equal level of dignity. Instead, people are feeling as if, you know, they are um, sort of being cast aside in the dustbin of history. And what's happening right now with, you know, uh, some of the, these populations that are now considered white, but at the time, maybe they weren't, you know, Italians and, uh, you know, uh, East Germans and others. Um, this is ultimately going to be what the elite also does to Hispanics. It's going to say, well, you know, now we need to import African labor because Hispanic labor just, you know, won't take the dirty jobs. And there's going to be a limit that's going to be reached eventually. There's only so many places around the world. And the question is, you know, if you, if you stop investing in your own people, if you don't have a strong work ethic in your own country, then you're going to run out of places to draw that work ethic from. And it's, um, that's not going to be helpful. You, you actually do need to have, you know, citizens in your own country who are willing to work hard. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a good point right there to to, to make about it, it, whoever comes in next can can. But so then that goes then to see, I, I've always said that, like, you, you know, I, I don't like the idea of of of, of like a white privilege or this. But, you know, uh, I feel I'm privileged because I had good parents and that's it, you know, and a lot of people don't. And 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 and, and that's, uh, you know, that's unfortunate. So I had good parents that probably, you know. Uh, uh, absent of them ha- uh, knowing uh, or playing the political game of like, like maybe, you know, like you said, uh, being manipulated into think that, um, oh, uh, 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 Democrats are for the poor, Republicans are for the rich. You're currently poor. So vote for the, you know, they're, they were probably conservative. You no, know, not probably they're, you know, they live conservatively, you know? I mean, I remember as a kid, you know, uh, uh, my parents would say they were very proud of saying, Oh, you know, we can get on food stamps, but, you know, we don't want to, you know, they would always tell like, you know, we, you know, you know, we don't want to get on that. That's probably a conversation that doesn't even happen anymore. You know, I mean, you know, if it does, it's very rare, you know, now everybody wants to take advantage of the system, but also, you know, I don't blame them too. I mean, people have seen the elites or whatever, take advantage of the system and they're like, Hey, I'm going to get mine too. You know I mean? They get it. Why, why can't we also, my parents, uh, you know, I didn't know that we, you know, I always knew I was like, Something was going on because, you know, at the time I had to pay for school lunch. But to me, people that pay for school lunch were people that their parents had some money or they made okay money. But, you know, they never made us feel like we had money. So, so, you know, they were being very like, hey, we didn't want you, you know, you know, we didn't have cable and everybody had cable. I mean, I remember we grew up kind of like that, like where we would feel like, but it was good. You know, it taught us good. It taught us. uh, I'm grateful for that. And, um, what is it about the American family, whether it's even into the the native white culture, like you said right now, hey, it would have been Irish and all that stuff. But so what ha- and in the future, it could be Hispanic family breakdown. What, what, 
what is it of what's going on at the that that type of hard uh, uh, hard work ethic or labor work ethic or uh, has diminished or, or or gone away? Yeah, I think it's two things. Um, first of all, America is just such a successful country and a wealthy country in general that um, it's very easy for people who you know have always grown up among wealth or among you know relative, uh, especially relative to the rest of the world, it's wealthy. Um, to take that for granted and to think, well, okay, we don't need to work as hard as our forefathers worked because uh, we've got it made. So I think there's, you know, some tendency just for that to, you know, um, the conditions under which you live, if they're comfortable enough, it will tend to make you uh, kind of less, you know, um, hardworking and diligent. But the other thing, of course, is that it's not just the a kind of natural thing that happens. There are also a lot of um, political ideologies and political powers which try to take advantage of, uh, of people. And when I said that, you know, I thought that immigrant populations are being manipulated, I want to stress that I, I don't think that's true just of, of immigrant populations. It's true of Americans as well, you know, sort of long time American populations as well. And, um, you know, one of the things that happens is that, um, you know, uh, if you're a racial minority or, or any kind of minority at this point, you know, um, sexual minorities and transgender persons and everyone, they're told the same thing. They're told by progressives, well, you know, uh, you don't, you shouldn't be working so hard or, you know, you shouldn't have uh, a really individualist ethic because you're oppressed by a system. You're oppressed by, uh, you know, um, by white people or by whomever, or by heterosexuals or whomever. And uh, any failure that you may encounter in life, any unhappiness that you encounter can be blamed on something outside of yourself. And similarly, you know, you see um, a lot of, uh, you know, sort of white heterosexual Americans in the Rust Belt or whatever, also being told that um, they're not responsible for their own plight and that uh, they you know, should blame someone else. Now, of course, this is what progressives do say about you know, populists who say that the elites are responsible for everyone's plight. They say, aha, well, you're just replacing, you know, the, the, instead of the whites being the oppressors, it's now the elites being oppressors. But I think it actually makes more sense to talk about the elites being the oppressors because um, you know, fundamentally, uh, money and real privilege, like having real power, is something that counts in, in, in terms of the relationships that you're able to construct among different people. Uh, and, you know, simply having a, you know, a skin color or something is rather different. And the way in which, you know, the left tries to elevate skin color over talking about actual wealth, over talking about actual power and actual, you know, uh, credentials like, you know, Ivy League credentials and things like that. Um, it seems to me that the left is really now distracting from the real sources of power as instead using, you know, color as kind of a, a distraction to bamboozle people. And again, they're bamboozling people all across the spectrum. And, um, you know, it's, it, it's something that the American people will just have to reject, you know, um, at the ballot box. They, you know, one of the great things about Donald Trump, who's a guy who's a very complicated and, you know, sort of troubling figure in many respects. But what I liked is that, you know, it was a genuine grassroots movement. I mean, nobody in Washington, D.C., absolutely nobody in the conservative movement was, you know, trying to boost this guy to be the presidential nominee in 2016. And it turned out that voters simply automatically just liked him. And uh, I think we need to have, you know, sort of more spontaneous, uh, you know, sort of people being willing to choose their politicians as opposed to the politicians kind of foisting themselves on the people. And uh, I'm, I'm kind of hopeful that right now things are in such flux that uh, maybe we'll see more of that. Um, and you, you had men uh, mentioned manipulation of the, I guess, uh, I don't know what the right word is, like the, the, the natives or the current people. Yeah, one of them that, that popped into my head that would that would then also lead into about the work ethic is that uh, getting sold this uh, bill about uh, everybody needs a college degree. 
and everybody needs to get loans and all that. So instead of maybe going into a trade or something like that or, or going to work, uh, and maybe it's not a big part of the population that did that and most people do. But I mean, I know, you know, when you have there's a trillion dollars worth of school debt, definitely somebody benefited from that. And uh, they were definitely trying to sell something that probably wasn't true because a lot of people now have degrees that don't uh, pay anything. Uh, you know, they don't benefit from those degrees anymore like they used to. But also another one that, that that popped into my head when listening to you talk was that, do you think also that there's this manipulation of by the elites, whether it is from, you know, I want to say like the the right side um uh, the, the 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 right echoes uh the media ecosphere whatever you want to call it where they also manipulate their people to think that hey the elites are the ones that are doing that but also sell this other story that says it's also the others in the immigrants that are also t- that 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 are the ones that are uh coming here to uh so is there man- manipulation can work in, in on both sides uh to benefit them am i overstating that or or am i saying that because that's kind of like how i hear it from you know being a latino or whatever like that they scare people into thinking that um there's you know even right now with the whatever's going on the on the border i mean for the most part it's um i feel that it's a lot of it is like a a a fear tactic which we also know that fear can be used uh uh, very well to to pass uh, political agendas but um I don't know. I mean, you know, am I, am I, am, am I right to think that or, or am I overstating some of that concern? No, it's true that, uh, you know, the right can certainly, uh, use, you know, sort of, uh, demagoguery or use, you know, sort of, uh, fears that people may have of, uh, you know, of, of you know, sort of, uh, mythical kinds of immigrants who want to come over and do everything bad. Um, this can be something that, you know, right wing politicians, uh, overemphasize. And use for their own, uh, you know, sort of uh, selfish benefit. Um, you know, you I think see it. You do see it. It happens. It does they, happen. they, they, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, okay. of course. And the, um, you know, there are also a lot of people who don't have that. Well, don't kind of uh, willfully take up that point of view, but who, as you've kind of suggested, um, they get exposed to it and then they don't question it, and so that's the language in which they speak when they talk about immigration or talk about you know other issues. And I think that's um, that's all, you know, pretty bad. It's all also, you know, kind of, um, unfortunately, the nature of politics. I mean, both, you know, as you said, the left and the right will both stoop to these kinds of uh, tactics. Uh, what I think is important is to kind of understand fundamentally kind of what the country is for. And I think fundamentally any country, whatever it might be, has to be for its own people first. And by its own people, I mean its own citizens uh, and those citizens of all backgrounds, right? So, I mean, citizenry is not, Something that is determined by, uh, you know, sort of uh, by color or by religion or by sexual orientation. Citizenry is a legal concept. Um, so a, a country should put its own citizens first, should put them first in terms of not just the immediate sort of commercial um, conditions they might be uh, able to take advantage of. And I think this is something that Alex Narasta, who you talked to last time, probably talks about. Oh, some of the economic benefits that you get from immigration. Sure. But also you have to think about the long term question of, is this a country that can provide for itself uh, both what it needs in labor, what it needs in terms of, of dignified labor, right, of being able to put people on different rungs of the economic ladder and, and be able to see them move up, uh, and in terms of elite skills as well, in terms of you know, computer programming, nuclear engineering, whatever the case may be. It seems to me that a country should have as much of that uh, that it's able to provide both for itself and also you know, for its own population. 
uh, as possible. And to the extent that it can't provide those things, then it, of course, will want to look beyond its borders, either for manual labor or for engineers or whatever the case may be. And that's understandable. And there should be some of that. And I think, you know, Americans should have an open discussion about exactly what the numbers should be and, and sort of what the timeframes for immigration and assimilation and getting green cards, getting citizenship, stuff like that should be. Um, and it should all be done legally. But I think that that's, you know, that's of the nature of politics. Once, once we have, once we agree that these are legitimate questions for people to have opinions and discuss, discussions about, then we can go forward and do this. What I think we have now, though, is a, is a situation where a lot of the elites in both parties, and it's not just the Democrats, but also a lot of the more corporate style Republicans, business class Republicans, they uh, basically see um, the rest of the world and its talent pools as being um, a substitute for strengthening America's own talent pools. And it's not necessarily what most people imagine where, you know, the immigrants are taking our jobs or something like that, or there's only a limited number of jobs to go around. It's rather the question that our elites are not investing as much as they could in the well-being and in the economic skills development of the population that lives here. And I think the result of that is that you see that Americans, you know, um, they have a sense of, uh, you know, being outcompeted by the Chinese and by others. Um, and it's true. And, and as you pointed out, like, you know, one of the reasons for that is a just a market test, right? I mean, if people are willing to work harder, then they could outperform these others. But um, that that work ethic itself, kind of going back to what we discussed uh, earlier, this is something that the culture helps to inform, right? And it's something that expectations and psychology help to inform. And that's why I think conservatives are very worried about that. Do Americans still have a kind of, you know, formative, uh, you know, cultural experiences or cultural, you know, um, inputs that are going to make them capable of both being uh, great construction site workers and also great computer programmers and so forth. And, um, you know, things like the op opioid epidemic and other, um, you know, detrimental um, statistics in the last decade, uh, you know, declining life expectancy among several populations. Um, it's all been, you know, a sign that America is letting down a lot of its own people. So we need to fix that. And uh, having immigration is good, but immigration should be seen as a bonus to be added to, uh, you know, sort of 100% commitments to your own citizens, uh, as opposed to being something that can be kind of a trade-off for having those commitments. Fair enough. Uh, fair enough. Um, yeah, I want to be respectful of your time. So I want to try to get uh, here to the end here of the, the I think the, the caldo has simmered enough and uh, we're, we're, we're ready to get into the, that question that I, that I, that I posed to you a year ago. Um, you, um, uh, uh, you said, I've heard you say that you've, uh, on one, on an interview, uh, um, that, uh, one of the principles of conservatism is to be anti-secessionist or to be anti-revolutionary fragmentation is another way that you've, uh, I've heard you say it. Uh, why is that? Yeah. Um, so I think what I was referring to when I said that is, you know, conservatives are going to talk about the kind of realities of, um, you know, sort of the, the scale that a state needs to be in order to survive. Uh, one of the problems with secessionism is that it tends to produce sort of fragmented small states, which may then fight wars among themselves or might be gobbled up and consumed by uh, larger powers. So this is what we saw happen after the uh, collapse of the Austro-Hungarian Empire at the end of uh, World War I. The Austro-Hungarian Empire had bound together a lot of different peoples, it was uh, obviously not a not a very democratic empire, but you know it was controlled by the uh, um, you know by Vienna, I suppose. And um, this, you know, once this was torn apart, the, uh, you had Woodrow Wilson say, "Okay, now we're going to have 
national self-determination for all the separate peoples who used to be part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Well, two things happened. First of all, because peoples are mixed together, it was very hard to say what national self-determination would mean. So, you know, even if you had, uh, you know, the, the Serbs would all be part of their own unit, uh, then you might have some Muslims living among the Serbs. And would those Muslims also get to have their small unit? Uh, and in, unless you're willing to let everything, you know, secede to the smallest levels, you're going to have some conflicts, you know, brought about by this principle. The second thing is then the external problem, because if you have a lot of small states and there are a couple of large states like Germany, for example, on their borders, then whenever those small states have conflicts with one of the large states, the large state is almost certainly going to be able to prevail over the small states and ultimately, you know, bully them or take them over. And that's exactly what we see, you know, in World War II, that, you know, even in the run up to World War II, Nazi Germany was gobbling up a lot of these smaller countries. And then uh, ultimately that brings the French in and then ultimately uh, the British as well. And, uh, you know, you have the whole uh, Second World War. So secessionism is a problem. You need to have a state that is uh, geographically large enough, strong enough economically in terms of its population, et cetera, to be able to defend itself. That's one of the key necess- necessities of any kind of state. If you don't have that, you can still exist, but you're going to be dependent on somebody else, right? So a lot of the, you know, of Western Europe and other places is dependent on American military power right now through NATO and through things like that. And uh, I think they would have some hard questions to face about their future and how they would provide for themselves and defend themselves if they didn't have uh, the United States basically continually subsidizing their um, their defense. Was is is the is Brexit a different type of secession that? you would agree or disagree with? I mean, you know, because uh, uh, that one was peaceful for the most part. Is, is- yeah, and, and Brexit didn't affect the sort of strategic integrity of Great Britain. So uh, Britain has always had its own military, you know, at least always as, as long as it's been part of the EU. The EU doesn't have any kind of military force of its own. So Britain's uh, capacity to defend itself was never in question, whether it was inside of the EU or outside of the EU. And so I think Britain, you know, was able to make a free choice there. And the question was just, you know, whether the England, whether the British thought that they were, um, you know, receiving a fair shake by the EU. And the question was not just, you know, economically was it beneficial, but also was the EU sort of corroding British uh, self-government and self-rule. And I think a lot of, you know, the British felt as if the European Union was a betrayal of the British, you know, uh, tradition of self-government and of, you know, sort of uh, democracy. And so they wanted to get out of the EU. And I think they've been smart to do so. And uh, so far, they seem to be economically uh, doing just fine outside of it. So if they so is it about how long they're in it or how long how long they're, you know, like uh, it was I don't know how long it was. It was it wasn't a long time when, since the EU was made and and, and then Brexit happened. It, so does does time play into your equate into your factor or, or to your, how you factor? Do you factor in time or is it about the. The values and the traditions of the state that wants to secede or wants to leave. Well, I'd kind of say that uh, what I said earlier is the primary thing: um, is whatever state you're going to create from seceding, is whatever kind of you know geographical entity comes out of secession, is it going to be you know defensible? Do you have the population and the material resources to make that thing sustainable? If you don't, then you're probably going to you know have a disaster on your hands. If you do. Uh, then the question becomes um, sort of what your reasons for secession are. And it seems to me, you know, if you have a tradition of self-government and that is being traduced by uh, your rulers, then that's one good reason to secede. Uh, if you're a population that's being, you know, sort of abused and kicked around by 
uh, a larger population within your country, that too can be a reason for secession. It's one reason why the Austro-Hungarian Empire itself started to break up is because a lot of the populations felt as if, you know, uh, the ruling uh, populations were being uh, unfair towards them. So, you know, those I think are legitimate reasons for secession. And I would only say that if you're going to secede, you just have to make sure that you can secede in a way that will create a defensible geographical unit at the end. And that's cool that we uh, kind of circle back all the way to uh, like sports again. So is this, is, is if you decide to secede, you need to be sure that you uh, move offensively, but know that you can defensively hold like, so it's kind of like there's this balance. It almost sounds like it's like, how would you ever know if you can be a def- a, a, a state that can then hold your own that, that can hold defensively against others if you never even attempt to try to to score a goal or you yeah. know to you know it's it's That's a, a great it, point. I mean, with you know uh, soccer, you're going to have strikers and you're going to have goalies, and a team has to have both strikers and goalies. It can't win if it has all goalies and no strikers. It can't win if it has all strikers and the goal is undefended. And the same way, if you're going to secede. You need to make sure that whatever community, you know, whatever geographic unit has seceded is going to have both goalies and strikers. It has to be capable of both defensive and offensive action so that it can stand on its own two feet in the, the world of nations. Otherwise, uh, the whole thing is going to become chaotic and probably just a joke at the end. Yeah, that's that's that, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, um, yes. So then um, the question was, uh, at the time when uh, when uh, Texas was part of Mexico, then you would have sided with the Mexican government as to say Texas shouldn't have seceded from Mexico? Well, um, so Texas, uh, you know, found itself to be tough enough that it could secede, but then it felt as if it wasn't, you know, necessarily able to stand on its own two feet and it winds up inviting annexation by the United States. Um, So the question is, you know, were were the Texans happy to have done that? And it seems as if they were. And I think that's even true of... uh, you know, historically, uh, Latino Texans have always been proud to be Texans and proud to be Americans as well, and generally have not looked back with regret on leaving Mexico. So, um, you know, anachronistically, if I look back, you know, retroactively from where we are now to back then, I, you know, you, you can say that it turned out very well. Um, but, you know, a lot of Americans at the time didn't think that annexation was just. They didn't think that, you know, American, because uh, I mean, one of the, I mean, it's, it's ironic, right? One of the things that was happening back then in the early 19th century, you actually had um, more more rapid population growth in the United States than you did in Mexico. It was opposite from what it is, what it became in the 20th century. And as a result, you had a lot of American settlers immigrating to Mexico, immigrating to northern Mexico. And, uh, you know, they started setting up and then they said, well, wait a minute, why do we need to listen to whatever the Mexicans tell us? We have, you know, enough of a population here that we can just either declare ourselves independent or you know, get ourselves annexed by, you know, this other country right next to us, the United States. Now, obviously, that's not something that is going to happen. You sometimes hear these, you know, kind of crazy things either coming from the left or from the right, talking about the nation of Achtland, right, which is going to be this this idea of rebuilding, you know, the old Mexico that goes all the way up to, you know, Oklahoma and beyond and, you know, way up there and retake California, everything. And nobody in their right mind thinks any of that is going to happen. Um, but it does show that open borders can have a bad result, right? Open borders for Mexico had a very bad result because it brought in a lot of American settlers who then said, you know what? We don't feel like Mexicans. We're Americans. We're going to do things our way and to hell with whatever Mexico City says. Yeah, now, quite- where would I stand back then? Um, you know, I would depend a lot, I think, on, you know, kind of 
on, on, on where, who I was, right? I mean, if I was a Mexican, I would probably say, no, the Americans should not be taking big chunks of our land. And if I were, you know, a settler, I would say, hey, this is my farmland. I think the Americans are going to protect it better than the Mexicans. So of course I want the Americans to come in. Or if I were, you know, an American, I might say that, um, we don't need to take this massive chunk of land from Mexico. We should, in fact, uh, let them handle their business and, uh, just, you know, go about our business, um, you know, as, uh, uh, as our own country. Um, but looking at it strategically, where I think we can, you know, get some objective conclusions and it's not just all a matter of perspective. I think strategically, the question is, if you claim a territory, just as if you want to secede, if you want to claim a territory, the question is, can you make good on the claim? Can you actually deploy the force necessary to keep it when someone calls your bluff? And if you can't, then you're probably going to lose it. And it might be wrong or it might be right, but it's going to happen. And then the question is, you know, just um, how do you make uh, that result? Um, how do you make the best of that result? And the, the fact was Mexico, you know, back in the 19th century, didn't have the population or the military force in order to keep a huge amount of land that it had claimed, whereas the Americans had uh, both the population and economic resources and ultimately the military force, not only to take Texas, not only to take, you know, the, the Mexican session and, and, you know, sort of uh, Arizona and California and whatnot, but in fact, to, you know, keep populating the uh, what is now the continental United States uh, and Alaska, for that matter, uh, well into you know the present time. So um, it's one of the big questions, right? These differentials in terms of population uh, growths can really determine the rise and fall of countries. And the Roman Empire had this question, you know, at its very end as well because uh, the German peoples on the borders of the Roman Empire, they were reproducing much more quickly than the Romans were. The Romans were, had a, a decreasing population. And so, you know, at first you just have some immigration and you had, you know, the Romans just, uh, or the Germans just wanting to be kind of settlers within Roman territory. And then sooner or later, you know, the more Germans started getting pushed into the Roman territory because people on the borders of the Germans were then, you know, sort of invading German territory and frightening them. So the whole, you know, sort of, uh, line of dominoes uh, just came tumbling down and the Roman Western Roman Empire collapsed. Um, and again, this is something which you can assign a good or bad value to it. But putting aside the values for a moment, the logic of how these things happen, um, in, you know, when population, military power and wealth don't all line up, you have big changes happen in the world. So America right now has a big population, a lot of wealth and a lot of military power. But if some of those equations started to fall away, um, then I think you'd see some real shift in global, um, you know, sort of alignment of powers. Yeah, I hear you. So, you know, I'm a, I don't know if it, I mean, I don't like the the word, but like, you know, some would say, oh, Texas nationalists or something like that. You know, I, I, you know, I think Texas can make the claim as a sovereign and, and secede from the union peacefully. And if it had to do something else, I mean, I don't think it has to get to that point. I mean, we can just reference like, uh, like a Brexit, even though it's not the same, but say, hey, we can just leave. But um, but uh, 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 I, I form my politics in a way that uh, and again, to sports, but it's just the way it is. Uh, I, I, I like to say that um, that uh, uh, one day uh, Texas will win a World Cup before the United States does. And um, and, and and that's kind of the way that I've uh, 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 set myself up to. It's a far marker, but it's the way that I hope one day uh, that instead of wearing some other jersey, I'm wearing like a Texas national jersey of of, of Texas. And um, and, uh, you know, um, maybe it'll happen one day. And if it does, uh, uh, we can hang out and watch the game, uh, Daniel. And uh, and uh, thank you for uh, coming on. Um, 
uh, I, I'd, uh, 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 I have more questions to ask, but I have to be respectful of your time. And, um, and, and I wish, uh, 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 I'd like to have you on again, if, if, if it'd be cool to have you back on in the future. And could you please, uh, 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 plug in kind of like where people can find you and then also kind of talk about the webinar that you have uh, going on with dad, um, uh, uh, currently. Yeah. I just want to say that, uh, your thoughts about uh, Texas independence are, um, just like the thoughts that the Scottish have right now about their independence, you know, from, from Britain. And they're working very hard to have referenda and to have that kind of peaceful secession. So there may be a precedent in the 21st century for uh, the kind of vision you've outlined. And I think the one question that will come up, of course, is whether a lot of the immigration uh, that uh, Texas is getting right now from other states in the United States, from California and elsewhere, is going to create complications for that uh, kind of secessionist ideal. So you can see how, you know, again, the, the culture that comes from some of these, you know, sort of population movements uh, has some real bearing on, you know, kind of what happens within uh, an existing community. In this case, a community that, that has some, you know, sense of Texas as a cultural entity unto itself, one that could even be an independent uh, republic. So I, I don't throw that out there to create any controversies right now, just to kind of get people's minds thinking about all these different parallels, Scotland and uh, the question of whether Californian immigration is ruining Texas. So our, uh, uh, our, our mutual friend, Buck uh, Johnson, will say, hey, give me all the illegal immigrants but don't give me any California, you know, <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah. Go ahead and uh, plug in where you people can reach you at and, and kind of give a description of what you're doing with that at, at a renegade university, please. Yeah. So you can find me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is Tory anarchist. So a bit of a strange uh, um, handle, but at Tory anarchist will allow you to find me. And uh, for renegade university, I am teaching a, a five uh, segment course on conservatism. And we'll be talking about, all these different uh, facets of conservatism. So the first one has been about uh, traditional conservatism. We'll be talking about libertarianism and libertarian conservatism in the second class, which is still coming up as I talk, but when this airs, it'll have already aired. So um, that's probably already available for listeners to uh, check out. Uh, the third one's going to talk about sort of conservative realism, some of these questions about uh, you know, how you defend a, a nation state, for example, that we've been going over uh, in this podcast. So I think uh, listeners will find that very interesting. And then uh, we'll also be talking about um, neoconservatives and uh, some of the sort of strange uh, new kinds of conservatism that you've seen uh, since the end of the Trump era and during the Trump era as well. So it, it'll be a fascinating sort of coverage of, uh, you know, the American right uh, in a whole variety of ways. And I think, you know, if you're conservative and you want to understand your own tradition, you'll find this course invaluable. If you're curious about conservatism, similarly, you'll find this really, really useful. And even if you are not conservative, even if you may be on the left, for example, this will actually be uh, a tremendous insight into how conservatives think about themselves and kind of a way to either create a dialogue or at worst, perhaps know your enemy better. So <laughs> one way or another, I think you should check out my Renegade University course on conservatism, which runs through the end of July. Perfect. Perfect. Uh, thank you for coming on and uh, appreciate it and uh, hope to have you uh, on again. Thanks, Carlos. I'll be right. delighted to be back. Peace. Thank you.